three. Hello, and welcome back to Wallet Street. This is the show where we, as regular people, try to make sense of the jumbled spaghetti that is finance and the financial industry. Um, I, myself, Charlotte Gee, worked in finance for a few years, and there's still so much I don't understand. So that's what we're here for. Today, um, you know, we hear a lot in the news about growing companies, tons of runs of, rounds of funding, you know, um, companies growing really fast, getting high valuations. Um, and, you know, although I guess I should say now the macro environment has changed a little bit, but up until then, that was the case. And so I really wanted to dig into like, what does that actually entail to take a company through funding and into um, becoming cash flow positive? And wanted to talk to someone who knows those ins and outs. So um, today we'll be talking to Galad Andorn, who's VP of New Revenue and Strategy at Live Auctioneers. And I'm really excited to um, talk with him. Ahead of the show, I gathered a couple of questions from listeners um, that I'll include as we go through our conversation. But as always, you can share your questions and comments at Wallet Street on LinkedIn or send an email to walletstreetpodcast at gmail.com. And just before we get started, my usual disclaimer that none of this is intended as financial, legal, tax, or investment advice. So with that, um, Galad and I first met in business school um, doing our MBA in Chicago and have remained friends since and stayed in touch. Um, and I really wanted to dig into more about the finance function of how a company works, and especially with some of these big transactions that companies go through and growth phases, you know, how does that work from um, that perspective? So with that, Galad, can you share a little bit about you and um, what Live Auctioneers does? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Charlotte. Really excited to be on the podcast. Uh, long, time, long time listener, first time caller, so <laughs> really excited. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so... A bit about myself, uh, I'm originally from Israel. I served in the Israeli Defense Forces for 10 years as an intelligence officer, uh, then transitioned into the private sector, became a management consultant uh, for almost three and a half uh, years, transitioned to the client side, joined Google, uh, did strategy and ops and corporate development work on DoubleClick, um, which uh, is Google's B2B tech product for big advertisers and agencies. Uh, moved to the States, did my MBA at Booth. Uh, during my time at Booth, uh, really explored interesting things. Um, so I came in really wanting to do impact investing. So I worked for a VC fund that invests in the least stage companies in Africa. Uh, so my, my summer I spent in Nairobi while you guys had fun in Seattle. Um, and um, my second year, I interned with um, a foundation that invests in education programs in the, in the US for underprivileged, underprivileged youth. So kind of tried to transition from more of a, a, a foundation and philanthropy um, entity to something that is slightly more active. Uh, and when I graduated, I joined Live Auctioneers um, to lead their strategy and finance team. And I've been with the company ever since and I've seen it through kind of different cycles and its, and its, uh, its evolution. So when I joined, the company was backed by uh, Best Venture Partners. It was a VC-backed company. Um, 
And in May 2019, we sold the company to a private equity based out of Boston called Cofield Partners. Um, then COVID hit and the world changed. Uh, we were fortunate enough to be in an e-commerce space, um, which kind of um, allowed us to, to grow during COVID. And in October of 2021, we sold the company again, this time to a publicly traded company from the UK called the Auction Technology Group. And, and what is live auction is? Um, yes. <laughs> it's the, <laughs> what does it it's do? Biggest, what does it do? Yeah, it's the biggest online marketplace for live auctions in the arts and collectible space. So we're a two-sided marketplace. On the one hand, we have sellers. All of them are auctioneers from the mom and pop shop from Idaho all the way to Christie's, Phillips, Bonhams um, that sell um, inventory. Uh, and again, the focus is arts and antiques. Uh, and it's a pretty wide category when I say arts and antiques. It's um, memorabilia, collectibles, high-end fashion, high-end jewelry, um, furniture, antiques, specific types of art. So everything that falls within those categories is being sold on our platform. Uh, so that's the, that's the seller side. And on the other hand, we have buyers. And we have multiple segments. We have professional buyers. We have people who just want to buy cool and unique stuff to their home or to themselves. Um, so uh, it's a pretty interesting industry. Um, as a side note, the auction industry, you know, people say it's probably the second or third oldest industry in the world. Uh, and it's been pretty antiquated for a while. I think it's probably one of the last industries to really transition into the online space and into the e-commerce space. And obviously live auction is, uh, has been around to facilitate that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's an evolving and pretty exciting industry. Yeah, and I, I have to admit, I have perused the website several times because there is some like really cool stuff. I think when I was looking into rede a redecorating project, which I never actually ended up doing, there's just some <laughs> cool like furniture and, and decor stuff there. But so um, for a lot of people who might not work in the finance function or, you know, really understand what does like a CFO or finance um, person do? So could you kind of explain like, what are the major responsibilities and tasks that someone in your role might do? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's three main hats that a, a VP finance or CFO wears uh, in a company. I think that the, the most basic function is, is what I call finance operations. It's the accounting, um, it's dealing with the day-to-day -day receivables, payables, collecting from different entities you work with, paying to different entities you work with, managing the bookkeeping activities of the business, doing basic treasury and cash management, audits, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. The basic financial operations a business needs to have in order to operate. Uh, I think the second layer is what I, I call strategic finance. Um, and, and into that bucket is, is sort of the, the more FP&A or financial planning and analysis work. It's working through the company's targets and trajectory, thinking about the strategic cash management and three statement management, the, the P&L balance sheet and cash flow, working with investors, working with lenders, doing high level, uh, treasury management with relations to the cash management, have uh, really driving the financial strategy of the company. Uh, and, and that's kind of the second layer. And the third layer is, is, is what I call strategy. And the reason the CFO or typically the VP finance is involved is that because they have a, an interesting mix because of the two first 
levels. I talked about both a very granular understanding of how the company is performing, but also a very high level view of where the company should go. Um, and to that extent, the, the CFO is many times kind of the conciliary of the, of the CEO. Uh, and the balance between those three roles really depends on the company, the individual and their background, and the CEO of the company and the other leaders of the company. Obviously, every financial leader within a company has kind of a mix of all, all of the above, um, but kind of what they're, what they're leaning towards really depends on, on the unique use case. Um, typically from my experience, uh, an operating company um, where kind of the, the financial operations is more meaningful for the business, the CFO will typically be dealing with that. Company which has pretty straightforward financials, but is still finding its position within it, the ecosystem, the CFO would probably lean towards more of the strategic decision-making and, and, and supporting that strategic decision-making. So it really depends on, on the unique use case. Uh, I would say my background is I have, you know, I'm not an accountant. I come from the strategy function. So um, when when I when I, I joined Live Auctioneers and I, when I was the financial leader at Live Auctioneers, I, I, I always geared towards the strategic finance and the strategic support uh, for the CEO. And obviously I had to build a very strong team to run the day-to-day -day finance operations, but that's kind of where I felt I could add more value. And because some of this, um, like you mentioned, your background is not in accounting and some of the nuts and bolts of some of the finance operations, like you said, how do you learn what you do? Did you, because I, I know we took a lot of finance classes at Booth. Um, I tended to think a lot of them are very much more theoretical than what you do in practice, but curious what your take is. Yeah, I think it's it's a mix of you need to have kind of the, the, the basic understanding. And I think even a, a theoretical class, obviously it's, a theoretical class at Booth is always has a practical side, um, can give you some of that. But in the end, I think most of my financial education came from just doing. Um, and theory is, is great and can maybe give you the basics. Uh, but I think um, actually being in a company seeing how a general ledger looks like, understanding the different movements, um, understanding how audit looks like, you know, three statements and its relations to, in, in kind of an Excel sheet, it's, it's great, but you need to understand what those really mean for the business. And I think that you can only learn by actually executing and working in a business. Um, and, and, and to be to be honest, the fact that I don't have that kind of, robust accounting background. I was never an accountant. Um, kind of forced me to learn a lot of things by myself and leverage a lot of knowledge within the company. And sometimes you fall, sometimes you make mistakes, but you always have to learn from them. So I think uh, now to your question, it's a, it's a good mix of both, but I would say uh, in this specific, or in my specific case, uh, the day-to-day -day was much more important kind of giving me the knowledge and, and understanding of the business than, than, the, than the theoretical um, schooling I had. Um, turning to less of the financial operations, but more another piece you talked about, which is the projections, which I always find really interesting because um, obviously for um, you know companies, there's always planning going on and, and looking ahead. And um, as someone who comes from more of a product or business side, like sometimes, you know, those are inputs that you have to provide to your finance 
team or, or, you know, looking at like, okay, what is the business doing? And then how does that actually translate into financial projections? So um, I guess, what do you look for? How does that all come together? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I think financial projections are much more of an art than a science. And, and, and the reason I'm saying that is you always have to think why you're projecting what you're projecting. What is what what is this supposed to drive, or what is this being used for? Right. As a public company, you do projections because you need to share that with the market. Um, but as a private company, you also do you also have to kind of go through a, a forecasting and projection exercise. But I think that drives slightly other things, right? So um, I think what we're looking for, or what I look for when I think about Forecasting is again, as I said, always what is it going to be used for? And then obviously that impacts the drivers. But typically it's going to be a mix of kind of, as you said, internal drivers, like what does the business think we're going to do? Mm-hmm. Because business and product are the ones that actually are engaged with the ecosystem, are engaged with the, 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 the users, um, and have the most insight into how their behavior is changing at the kind of very granular level. So you always want to know their input into into um, into the forecast, and kind of that's from the business side. Kind of from from your pro- from the product side, you want to know what's coming down the pipeline, what's coming in the roadmap, and mainly when. And on top of that, when is that going to impact our our, our business performance? So, you know, um, product roadmaps have immense implication on financial forecasting. Um, and the smaller the company or the bigger the product, the more the bigger the impact is on, on the forecast. So I think um, when the, the finance person is factoring you to get to understand the roadmap, it because it, it has significance on, on how they view the business and the business uh, performer financials. Um, other things that I look at is historicals. Mm-hmm. Mainly to understand trends and cyclicality. Um, I think, you know, obviously we look we look at externalities, um, but I think in today's world, it's very hard to really embed externalities into how that's going to impact your business, given the immense pace of change we've seen in in our macro environment in the last three years, right? If we've had that, this conversation three years ago, we've had a, we would have had a, a completely different conversation. Um, so I think the, the intensity of events is really making it difficult to embed kind of external drivers into your model, but that's something you have to do. So kind of I sort of take external drivers, take a historical behavior and sort of discount both of them as, as an input in the forecast, because I think it's, Again, as the last three years um, demonstrated, it's very hard to count on historicals or or try and forecast externalities. Um, I do I do try to embed larger cycles, and it really kind of depends on on the business. Um, but I think in, in the auction industry, we are, and especially at live auctions, we are riding some very positive macro trends. Um, everything at live auction is recycled, so it's kind of a clear indicator of a green economy. And that's something that both uh, businesses and individuals appreciate. Um, we sell unique items, which is also a mega trend. People want to be unique. Um, 
and we sell cool stuff that are also cyclical. So, um, and that's kind of slightly more complicated to forecast, but you can still identify trends based on cycles and you can see fashion. I think all the Gen Z now are going back to the nineties. So kind of those come at, at specific paces. So I think that's all those trends I hope don't come back, but. <laughs> Yes, I, I agree. I agree. <laughs> but they seem to be coming back regardless. But I, I am I am seeing baggy pants on, on the streets of New York. So definitely some of the, the bad ones are coming back. So yeah, and, and that's also something we try to embed, but that's very industry specific. Um, and I think the most important thing you do when you try and forecast is always kind of have pockets in your forecast that are, can allow for black swans. Um, can you explain, cause I'm not familiar with that term. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so there's a, there's a, there's a famous book by Nassim Taleb, I think called Black Swan, which talks about unpredict, un, uh, events that you can't predict. For example, COVID is, is a very good example. Right? If we were again talking in February of 2020, we, we couldn't have, estimated how COVID would look like and how that would impact the business. So when you, you forecast, uh, you try and make sure that your model is adaptive enough that it could, um, it, it could, uh, it could uh, contain big unexpected events. Um, so that's kind of what I'm saying, working based on historicals and working based on externalities. It's very hard to do, but you need to be able to contain both of them in your forecast. Um, and I think, you know, with, with all of kind of the way I described making a model, it's it's very easy to go into analysis paralysis, but I think you really want to make sure that you're always kind of have the big picture in mind and, and it goes back, goes back to kind of what I originally said is why, what is this financial projection being used for? Is it for the public markets, is it to set targets and quotas for your sales team? It really changes and, and, and the levers and the weights of each driver um, is changed based on what this, this model or this forecast or this projection is being used for. Um, yeah, I always, I mean, to, in my mind, it's so important to have the input variables as, I mean, I don't know if you can always be 100% accurate, but you know, those are obviously what drives the output. So. Um, being able to really drill down on those and be more accurate, it seems like a very critical part of the process, but not always easy to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. And kind of my personal approach is I, my underlying assumption is that every model is going to be 100% wrong. <laughs> like you're never going to hit the number that you're, you're talking about. The question is how far off you're going to be from it. Um, and and then that's kind of how you fine tune uh, the different drivers and different weights into the model. Um, I wanted to also move to uh, kind of this third pillar that you talked about of like kind of strategy or big strategy decisions. I know that CF you know CFOs or finance teams are involved with. Um, when I was working in investment banking and working on some of these larger transactions, that's primarily the you know stakeholder that you're engaged with, um, and so. I'm curious what your experience has been going through um, the process of 
a funding like a funding round in the in the case of 2019 um and uh you know being sold or being acquired by a new company just at a I know we can't get into specifics but at a high level like what is that like um to be on that side of of the table yeah I think financing rounds are uh complicated yet very exciting um you know you're an XI banker so you had all that uh action in your day-to-day life which uh as, as someone working in a company don't you don't you don't get to uh, experience on, on an ongoing basis but i think it, the thing that drives uh financing is kind of what what is the big driver for the injection of capital or kind of raising funds for, for a company and you know again it really depends on the company and use case but you can raise funds to to finance additional growth. You can raise funds to generate liquidity events for the investor or for the owners. Um, and I think that drives a lot of, of the process. Um, and I think that really depends or, or, or that outcome, what is the rationale behind the injection capital really drives who's gonna be involved in the process. And uh, to make things more complicated, the entity that's injecting the capital, kind of what drives the entire financing process is what is their expected outcomes, right? So let's take, for example, a company that's raising money from venture capital. Um, typically, that company would raise funds to, to finance additional growth. That's what typically VC stage companies, that's what they typically do to, when they raise funds. And the investor, in this case, the venture capital fund is looking for above market average returns within a time frame, let's say five or seven years. And that kind of drives what type of conversation they're going to have, right? Uh, and, you know, we, we differentiate between a financial player, in this case, a VC or a venture capital fund. And when they think about how they, they structure this financing round, they're, lo- they're looking to maximize their financial outcome. Um, for example, when we sold live auctioneers to ATG, ATG Auction Technology Group is a strategic player. It's not a pure financial player. So obviously they want a very positive financial outcome when we're structuring this financing round, but there's um, additional value that they could extract from the business, which is not purely financial, right? Uh, and obviously in the end, it could be quantified in economical units, but the value of two strategic entities working together generates value, which is not always just purely financial and is not always measured in purely financial metrics. Uh, so I think I'm going back to your to your question about the process, kind of the complexity is because in every situation, everything is different. The reason you're raising funds, who you're raising funds from, what those funds are gonna be used for, what is the incentive or what are the people you're raising funds from are looking for, um, so and the um, environment that you're in i mean that can also yeah. very quickly so of, of course i mean um you're 100 correct like raising funds now is not the same as raising funds a year ago not the same as raising funds four years ago four years ago both in terms of where your company is positioned but also the macro environment yeah you're 100 correct um and i want to say um you know when when um companies raise funds, there's um, what impacts the process. 
um, is, I mean, strategic players have their incentives and financial players have their, their incentives, but in the end, it's people that you're raising funds from. And that sometimes gets lost because you can have two financial players that when you think about in terms of kind of efficient markets should expect the same outcomes. But the process and the outcome could be completely different. And that's because you're working with people. And I think that's something that I'm sure you as, as an ex-investment banker kind of saw a lot, but it's kind of the nature of the people you're working with have has a massive impact on how the financing process looks. No, that's definitely true. I mean, every situation is unique. Every investor is slightly, it's hard to, um, while there's, I think, um, patterns in, in, you know, it's not every transaction is, is exactly the same. Um, I think what would be helpful is to walk through a little bit, some of the, you know, details of, especially valuation and how these kind of pre and post money valuations get established again at a high level. Cause I, I think one of the things that I have found a little bit frustrating in the news up until, um, I guess kind of this economic correction we're in or, or downturn that we're in, but, um, there's, uh, you know, you hear like all these kind of headlines of X company raises, you know, so much, you know, X amount of money and has this huge growth in valuation. And I mean, really, we were seeing in the last few years, um, really quick also turnarounds between financing rounds. So it was like, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'll have a financing round, a series B, and then I'll wait several years till series C. Like sometimes you'd see them like within the same year, which um, is crazy. And you'd see the valuation obviously go up with that. But um, so I'm just kind of wanted to ask you that um and, and explain it a bit for our listeners? Yeah, again, it's a great question. Uh, and I think my answer will have some with professors up in arms. I, I, I think um, finding the intrinsic value of a company is almost impossible. And I think when you come to generate a, a valuation, to, I mean, I'm, I'm putting aside kind of public market valuations, which are kind of driven by demand and supply. Talking more about kind of private valuations, which I think are slightly more hidden. Um, people have a price in mind. So the, the buyer or the investor has a price in mind of how much this um, company is, is worth and how much do I want to own out of it. And the seller, has the price of how much they believe the company is own and how much funds they want to raise. And, and in the end, if there's a, if there's a there's kind of an investment or a transaction, they meet in the middle. So it's kind of a, a very pure market space in, in, in its form. Um, and, and I'm talking from, from a company standpoint, I think thinking through that obviously depends as we talked about, what are you looking for? Are you looking for for growth or are you looking for liquidity? And that's gonna kind of impact a lot on, on how you kind of, what, what price you have in mind. So when, you know, when people talk about valuations, they typically talk about multiples, meaning how much I need to pay, what X amount of revenue this company is worth or X amount of EBITDA this company is worth uh, based on a bunch of, market externalities and comps and models and historical figures, 
to me, it's, it's almost an academic or theoretical exercise to justify the price the seller has in mind and the buyer has, has in mind, and then they, they need to meet in the middle. Um, so kind of, you know, when, when a, a VC or private equity comes to invest in a company, um, in essence, they're evaluating the company based on future performance on, and how much money they're gonna get when they sell the company. Uh, and when you think about that, especially in today's world, with the pace of change in externalities, um, what's gonna drive the next valuation? It's how the company is performing, which again, as we said, given the externalities is very hard to estimate and what the market is gonna be willing to pay for that company, what's good, what the quote unquote multipliers are gonna be when, when you sell the company. And again, based on the, 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 the pace of changes, that's also very difficult to estimate. Like who said that a 10X EBITDA is a good number for a SaaS company or a bad, bad number for, for a SaaS company? Because the rate of change and involvement in the world is so quick that I think those Kind of evaluating based on that is is again, in my opinion, more more of an academic exercise. Um, and I think as we talk about, it, it's also important to understand who's investing, right? Like a pure financial investor would look at the economic outcome. Like how much can I sell this company for in X amount of years? What a strategic player might look at, yeah, I want to make sure that this generates positive economic outcome, but there's much more values I can extract from this business by merging it with my client entity. It's almost like, um, sorry to jump in here, but it's almost like in real estate, like someone who's investing in a house to you know, then flip it and sell it later on versus someone who's buying it. But you know, yes, they wanna make a good economic decision, but also maybe it's important to be near certain schools for their kids or they want a certain yard or you know, there's a quality of life kind of that is a little bit more difficult to quantify. Exactly. You're 100% right. It's, it's, it's the same decision. When you buy a house where you want to live it in, it's not a pure homo economicus type decision, right? There's other irrational uh, things that come into the decision. I want to have high ceilings. I want to have big windows. It's not kind of always embedded within the value of the house. But to your first point about people flipping the house, I think what we've seen is that financial investors are investing in companies because they're looking for a value add, which is not a strategic value add, but it's a hype value add. What does it mean? Or what do I mean when I say that? Um, a VC fund would want to have a specific company or their portfolio so they can go and tell their LPs or their institutional investors, look, we've invested in this very cool company that's now mega hype. And that skews the entire uh, uh, economic rationale behind investing. And that's kind of, you know, we saw the headings and headlines of kind of this company is becoming a unicorn. And after two months, it's becoming a, 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 a $10 billion company and a $50 billion company. It's not driven by a real change in the company's performance. It's driven by hype. And that hype has kind of penetrated the, 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 the financial investor. Uh, mindset and it's kind of sort of created a Fonzie-like mechanism, right? You need to invest with the hopes that someone else is going to invest after you at high valuation, just driven by hype and not real value generated by the company. And that's what we're seeing now, right? We're seeing companies crashing 90, 95% of their valuations. Um, 
because yeah, we sort of had a, a Ponzi mechanism driven by hype. Um, and I, and I, don't want, I don't want to attribute this quote to anyone, but I, I, I don't remember who said that quote, but um, valuation is just as good as what does the next person bring to pay for this company. So that's kind of what has been the mindset of, of, of a lot of investors. I think it's, it's sort of a danger. We were kind of, you know, we were in a bubble and it exploded and it was kind of, this, this time it was justified. Well, and this leads me directly into my next question, because, um, which is about, you know, going from that funding phase to more positive cash flow. A lot of, you know, some companies will use funding as a way, and not all, but some will use it as a way to fuel growth, growth, especially if they're not yet cash flow positive. Um, And I think what we saw in in the last few years was these funding rounds. And in my mind, I've seen it as like, it's almost like your business model becomes trying to find the next set of investors rather than actually, how do you think about getting to cash flow positivity for your business? Um, And, you know, like you said, investing general or traditionally has been about what, what is, um, the benefits or the or the predicted cash flow that you can get out of that asset versus um what can I get the next person uh to pay for it. Um and that seems to have definitely changed at least in the last few years and w- what we see in again in um some of the the headlines. Um again I'm not close enough to it day to day, but just as an observer. So I guess that all leads me to like how do you bring that company into cash flow positivity, you know, yeah, I think that's a good that's that's a good a good question and a great observation. But uh, in the end, I think it goes down to unit economics. Is what the company is selling? Can you manufacture it for less than you can sell it? And uh, the most fundamental, basic thing that the company is doing. Um, and I think that kind of in the last couple of years, people didn't believe that that's what's needed to 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 generate value of company. Uh, and that, that companies can generate value with even being cash cash flow negative forever. I even think there's a pretty famous big tech company that in their IPO documentation said that there's a good chance that they'll never be able to be cash flow positive. And when you think about, especially if you should have a grad, that really hurts me. Uh, I'm a strong believer in, in kind of, in, in cash is king and, and, and cash flow is important because you know, we talked about valuations and we talked about multiples, but to your point, in the end, if a company is, is, is able to generate positive cash flow, there's intrinsic value within that company. That company can generate money for its owners, for its investors, and that's something that you can start to try and quantify. Um, again, it's very hard to forecast, and we talked about the amount of externalities in the world, but that's that's something very important now. So your question, like, how do you move to that phase? Again, it really depends on the unit economics and it depends on what your investors want. Um, you know, and, and, and I think in the last couple of years, the, some investors believe that you can generate intrinsic value without generating cash um, and kind of try to scale models that the unit economics were, were negative. I think what we've... Uh, you know, in, in online marketplaces, uh, and that's kind of one of the reasons that I, uh, when I joined that auctioneers, I was very bullish on the industry, the basic fundamental unit economics work. So your decision to move from mining to for external financing to be cash flow positive is more of kind of 
you know, turn of a switch. How much do I want to invest in overhead versus how much I want to invest in the pure in the pure scaling and replicating of business economics of what I'm selling to to the end user. Um, and and to your point about how things have changed, I think um, you know our generation, which is now kind of becoming leaders within our companies, it's the first time we're managing in an environment where we have inflation, real inflation, and where the cost of capital is no longer zero. Right in the last fifteen years, we could have kind of generated cash or money or lend money with almost zero consequences. Um, and that obviously has, has skewed us to a model where companies, if they can continue to generate money with almost zero opportunity cost, then they could grow kind of exponentially without having basic unit economics. And I think that has changed dramatically over the last year. And I think it will be really interesting to react to see how leaders in, from kind of our generation would would deal with that because uh, you know companies and managers and financial leaders have have stopped thinking about that right like you know in all the models that we went to school we worked with kind of we took inflation as a constant i know one and a half to two and a half percent a year and cost of capital is almost being zero <laughs> now when the models change and reality sets in it's going to be a very different different world and i think we are definitely in for a lesson on, on how kind of we need to readjust when we think about transition companies to different life cycles and the validity of some of the entrepreneurship that was a very valid road to success in, in the last uh, 15 years. That's, um, yeah, it's great that you brought that up because that feeds into a question that a, last, a listener shared with me was about how to manage when you're in the finance function, how do you manage with the current economic environment, like how that's changed, especially with higher interest rates, inflation, which, you know, has come down a little bit from last year, but it's still quite high, um, especially relative to what we've experienced, like you said, in the last decade or so. Um, So I imagine it just makes it much more difficult to predict and you have to be much more conservative. Yeah, hold on. It it changed everything, right? You... Um, are much more conservative. Your willingness to take risks has gone down dramatically. You want to leave much more buffers in your in your uh, financial planning and financial execution. Again, to make sure that you can contain those those black swan events um, mm-hmm. uh, from from a uh, you know from a financial standpoint. Um, sustainability, financial sustainability in the sense of kind of making sure that the business is sustainable is, is, is key. Um, and I think that's kind of um, really shifted the way you think about everything in terms of finance, financing growth, um, going even after growth versus uh, kind of expanding your margins uh, because the opportunity cost is real, right? Um, Money is no longer free, um, and kind of the entire standards and benchmarks and expectations from everyone ha- have changed, right? All kind of from employees who are expecting to get paid more because now going to the supermarket or going to uh, 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 any retail is more expensive, 
uh, all the way up to investors that now have real opportunity costs in terms of just, you know, you put your money, your, your funds in, in a savings account, you can get 4%. What type of returns do you need to generate as a company that wants to finance itself for growth? So it, it really has changed everything. I think what's um, really interesting to know, not to know, but I think it's really fascinating is how all this will end, right? Like. How long is this here to stay? You know, there's been periods in, in financial history where inflation was high and interest rates were uh, double digits for, for, for several years, right? For decades. Uh, and we've been in the kind of an opposite environment for, for a very long time. Um, I, I, I don't know, but, but it definitely kind of the immediate impact is you need to be more conservative. Uh, I do think there's a lot of interesting opportunities is kind of this new world order, but it's definitely as slowed down everything. Um, in addition to your role, you're also an advisor for another startup company. And I'm just curious, how does that, how does being an advisor, um, you know, what's different about it or what do you enjoy about it? Yeah. Uh, I also have an 11 month old baby and I compare being an advisor to like having nieces and nephews. Mm -hmm. um, you get to play around with them, but when they're not well behaved, you can give them back to you to their <laughs> parents. Uh, so yeah, it's it's really really interesting. Um, I think seeing the startup environment now has kind of, and and I've seen this company um, kind of when it was still a, a very positive micro environment is really, um, you know. Uh, front row seat to seeing how decisions are being made uh, in a cash constrained environment with extreme uncertainty. Um, and I think the ability to advise and add value is, is, is being fun, very rewarding because you see how kind of the company is adjusting and moving quickly and making decisions and, and improving its performance in, 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 in a very complicated environment. Um, and, you can, and, and, and I think it's great because you can really uh, adds value, but without um, taking on the, the risk um, or taking on the full risk. Uh, so I highly recommend people to do that. If you can advise startups, you can advise SMBs, people that have professional knowledge, regardless of what you do, you're a product manager, you're in finance, you're in sales, you're in biz dev, you're in marketing, I think working with small companies at this time is one super interesting because you can really kind of see how companies are reacting to what's you know, going on in the world. And two, you can, you can really add value. Um, and I think what's really interesting about this dynamic right now is if you're able to make it, you're, you're good. Like if you look at companies that grew during the kind of 07, 08, 09 crisis, they're the, you know, all the big tech that we're talking about right now, uh, our companies that kind of really grew, grew and evolved during those periods in time because it forces you to be better and it almost kind of destroys people that are not good enough to survive. So it's, 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 it's one, it's interesting, it's exciting, it's scary. Um, it brings a lot of positive energy. It keeps me up at night sometimes, but I think, um, Kind of working with the, the, the dynamic life of a startup is, is exciting and especially now um, 
So I, I highly recommend doing that. And, and, and in the end, I think as we talk about investors, also for the companies you work with or the companies you're advising, it's all about the people. So if you're with a good group of people that are driven, I think kind of sky's the limit. Well, thank you so much for sharing um, your experience and, and background. And I know I've kept you for a little while. So before I let you go, though, I just always like to ask um, each guest anything that they're reading, listening, or watching right now that they want to share um, and recommend to others? Yeah, I'm actually in the midst of reading uh, the new Malcolm Caldwell book, The Bomber Mafia. Okay. It's about... I haven't heard of it, uh, so I'm, I'm excited. I didn't realize Yeah, it. it's about the uh, you uh, American and British bombers in World War II uh, and the kind of bombing campaign over Germany and over Japan, and obviously uh, the atomic bombs or the atomic bombs over um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and how kind of people that are hidden from kind of view really impacted the, the way the war was fought or the war was won and had obviously long-term implications on, until, until today. Uh, like what drove uh, decision-making in the way it happened, uh, kind of, historical backgrounds, technological advancements of, of things that are kind of, you wouldn't imagine would have such a massive impact on how we live today. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting to see kind of what's a layer beneath, which is kind of really driving outcomes. Um, so I, I highly recommend that. And obviously kind of Martin Caldwell is very entertaining as a writer. So have you, I, I, I highly recommend any book of his, but the Bongo Mafia is, is the one I really like right now. I will add that to my library queue. Um, for me, I just wanted to plug a podcast that I've really been enjoying. I go through phases of listening it or not, but it's called The World Next Week, um, and it's put on by the Council on Foreign Relations. And it's just a very good, you know, short-ish, 30-minute overview of what's been going on in the world, around the world for that week and what's you know, what are the events that are coming up next week? And it's a good way to kind of like keep abreast of what's going on. They cover about five or six stories a week. Um, so anyways, if anyone's looking to follow international politics, I recommend that one. Um, okay. Well, with that, um, Galad, uh, thanks for joining us. And I know our listeners can find you on LinkedIn or they can find more about live auctioneers at liveauctioneers.com. Um, Thanks everyone for listening. Please rate and review the pod and sign up for the newsletter at walletstreetpod.com. And as always, look out for the next set of questions and comments for the next episode. Would love to hear from you. Um, you can submit that on LinkedIn or send me an email at walletstreetpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all and, and thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Awesome. <laughs>